Hi, you're listening to a podcast brought to you by the teaching team at New Life in North Lincolnshire. New Life is committed to helping transform people and transform places through the love and power of Jesus Christ. We hope you, in some small way, will be blessed and transformed by this message. Good morning, everybody. Parables. We're coming into the final two weeks of what has been like a two-month series. Um, so I'm going to be speaking this week. Sam's going to be preaching for us next week. And we're going to be trying to like, wrap this thing up and land it somewhere that's going to be helpful for us as a church. Um, but before we kind of move forward, I want to tell you a little bit uh, about where I grew up. So I grew up in South Cambridgeshire, because you'll recognize that my accent's not from Scunthorpe. And as Elena said, we're, we're recent uh, migrants to the area. Um, so I grew up in South Cambridgeshire, and my parents are from North London, hence this weird kind of accent that's picked up bits and pieces of the UK wherever I've been. But I went to a primary school called Triplo C of E Primary School, Triplo C of E, and it was a lovely school. It looked a little bit like Frodingham Infants. It was kind of Victorian era, about 103 students in the entire school. That's not like one year group, that's the whole school. 103 students, six of them were called Daniel. It was a popular name. Uh, so we, we grew up being referred to by our last names, right? And so I was Scoose at school from the age of about four right? <laughs> until I left school at the age of however old I was when I left school. And there was this amazing thing that happened every break time. And I'm sure wherever you went to school, something like this probably happened where you grew up too. Uh, we played football. And um, it's not that amazing, admittedly, but, you know, it happens everywhere, right? Anybody, anybody's primary school play football? Yeah, okay, great, everybody, right, because it's the UK, and that's apparently what kids do at break times. And during the winter months, we had to play on tarmac, because otherwise we got really covered in mud, and that wasn't okay, apparently. And so we played on tarmac, and it was a bit brutal on the knees, but I learned to play in goal, and so it was just constantly coming home with like holes in various amounts of school uniform, because that's what you do when you're about eight, right? You wear through school uniform, you wear through shoes, parents are nodding, they're like, yep, every term. Does it... Any, it's boys, parents of boys. Now, I'm a parent of a girl, so it's brand new territory for me. But parents of boys, do your kids actually grow out of clothes? <laughs> or do they just, like, wear through them? Because I was definitely the sort of kid that I don't think I ever grew out of a pair of clothes in my life. Now, some of you are looking at me going, Dan, that's because you, you didn't grow enough, right, like, <laughs> to grow out of a pair of clothes. Which is really mean of you, and I'm judging you for it. Okay, so... So we, we kind of grew up, and I used to get through, I don't think I ever made it through a full term without needing to buy a second set of uniform, my poor parents. But one day we were playing um, football at break time, and it was about five aside, because, you know, small pitch. And there was a lunchtime assistant called Mr. McGarry. Everyone say Mr. McGarry. Mr. McGarry. Mr. McGarry. Now, Mr. McGarry was a fairly impartial referee. He, he was all right. He was trying to help us out by keeping us in line and making sure that we didn't you know, play on the mound when it was muddy and that sort of stuff. Uh, but he had a son called Fergus. Everyone say Fergus. 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 I mean, poor kid. <laughs> like, Fergus was playing football that day. And Fergus committed at the age of eight what could only be described as a professional foul. Okay, so he comes hacking it down the pitch, and he takes out the last man, clear goal-scoring opportunity. If it was the women's Euros, it would have been a straight red card. But no, because Mr. McGarry is refereeing. Mm. Mr. McGarry was not impartial on that day. 
Mr. McGarry let play run, and Fergus sprinted the full length of a very small pitch to score the winning goal at break time. I mean, talk about an injustice. I mean, age eight, this was like life or death football, okay? So we, we made our feelings known to the referee. We, we protested and we said, sir, you know, we don't feel that's, that's fair. That's not fair. It's not fair, is it? And so I did what would be reasonable, right? I, I got the team around. I was playing in goal that day, and so we, we got everybody around and uh, said, look, lads, lads, the age of eight, what are we going to do? <laughs> what are we going to do? This isn't fair. I said, I don't know. Like, we're just going to have to get on with it. I said, no, this is wrong. This is an injustice. I've always had quite a strong sense of injustice. <laughs> and so I said, right, what are we going to do? When the bell goes to signal the end of break, the six of us, we're going to walk to the far end of the playground and we're just going to sit down by the fence. <laughs> we're not going to shout, we're not going to swear, we're not going to kick up a fuss, we're just going to quietly pick up our stuff, walk to the far side of the playground and sit down by the fence. And so at the age of eight years old, genuinely, this is a true story, six of us <laughs> organised possibly the first ever sit-in protest at Triplo C of E Primary School, and probably the last, right? Because we wanted to be heard. We felt like it was really important, for whatever reason, this game mattered more than others, and the injustice of Mr. McGarry ruling in favour of his son, Fergus. I really hope they're not watching online, that'd be really weird. Um, <laughs> we felt like it was something that was strong enough to be, rent, sort of, to be addressed. And you guys know me, I'm not really one for confrontation. So I thought I'd address it in the least confrontational way possible by organising what I would later discover is called a non-violent protest. Apparently it's a thing. I didn't discover that till my 20s, but by the time I did discover it, I was like, hey, it works. Because we had a delegation from the head teacher's office come out to meet us and to, to hear our terms. And, and the long and the short of it is we ended up back in class about 10 minutes after everybody else. <laughs> But it was a point worth making. But I wonder whether you've ever had anything like that in your life. Not like organising a stay at sort of a sit-in protest, although you might have done, I don't know. But where you've had that sen really strong sense of, but that's not fair, that's not right, what's happening there. And I don't know how you'd address it. You probably, because I'm a bit of a weirdo, address it in a very different way from me. Otherwise, we'd have had like a lot more protests, I think, over the years. <laughs> So I don't know what kind of experience you've had with it. I don't know what caused that moment or that feeling for you. But I'm fairly certain that all of us have had that sense inside of us. So that's not fair. You know, I've come to think of fairness as the lowest form of justice. It's kind of like the low bar. When we talk about this big plan of God to bring justice into the world, to make right what has gone wrong, I've kind of come to see fairness as like the lowest entry level to that world. Because you've got a few steps above it. Because fairness isn't the same as justice, and yet it's a gateway to justice. And it reminds me of this story in the life of Jesus. See, one day Jesus is sat around with his disciples, and some children come to him, and they say, and, and people start to sort of shush them away, and, no, 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 don't bother the teacher, don't bother the teacher, go away. And he says, no, 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 let the little children come to me. And as he goes on from this place, a man comes to see him, and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question, isn't it? It's a question that I think at some point or another, most of us have asked, you know, what have I got to do? And Jesus says, it's simple, right? Obey the commandments. Now, the man's looking for a bit of extra credit here. So he's like, which one's Jesus? 
you know, be specific. Like, I don't want to get this wrong. Right? <laughs> like, I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize you meant the other commandments. And so he pushes Jesus a little bit, and Jesus lists off some commandments, and he goes, oh, that's great. All these things I've done since I was a boy. And Jesus says, well, go then. Sell all you have and give your possessions to the poor. And it says that the man went away sad. He was downcast because he had great wealth. And part of me wants to be like, Jesus, that's not fair. Right? Why would you ask the one? This guy wants to follow you. He's doing his best. Why would you ask the one thing of him that you know he can't do? That's not fair, is it? Is it? You're looking confused. You're like, I thought it sounded like a really good deal. <laughs> and I it kind of I read this story and it and the disciples at the time, if you read the, the last half of Matthew chapter 19, the disciples push back with some questions of their own, going, Jesus, like, what does this mean or what does that mean or why these things? And Jesus responds to these questions out of this setting with this parable. You knew we were going to get there eventually, didn't you? Jesus responds to a whole host of questions with this. He says, this is the great reversal. Many of those who are first will end up last, and the last first. Start of Matthew chapter 20. You see, God's kingdom is like a landowner who went out early one morning, just as the day was beginning, to hire workers for his farm. They agreed on a wage that was, going, that was the going rate and went to work. Later, at about nine o'clock, so the day started at about six, so at nine o'clock, the landowner saw some other men hanging around the marketplace unemployed. He told them to also go and work on his farm, and he would pay them a fair wage. And so they went. He did the same thing at midday and again at three o'clock. At five o'clock, he went back and found still others standing around. He said, why are you standing around all day long doing nothing? And they replied, because no one has hired us. Each time he told them to go and work at his farm. The story continues, but I just want to hit pause there for a few minutes and unpack some stuff for us. In the day of Jesus, people lived um, from day to day. Not like in a figurative way, as in like they really laid back and just kind of happy to kind of take the day as it comes. Literally, they lived from day to day. It's estimated that around 50 to 70% of the population at the, day of Je- at the time of Jesus lived at what economists call subsistence level. That means that 50 to 70% of people had enough, just enough, for today. Just today. And so you think about the life of a day laborer, right, who's paid a daily wage. He has to work every day of his life, apart from Sabbath, just to have enough to get up and have food to eat the next day. So no sick days, right? No days off. Every single day of their lives, I have to get up, I have to go and find work. Their entire Life was dependent on somebody else's work, somebody else's venture, somebody else's success. All they had to do was get up every single day and find work, whatever it looked like. So what happens if you miss a day? Say you are poorly, you've got the flu. Or there's a national heat wave and your kids are off the childminders. I don't know. I just <laughs> well, I'll tell you what happens. For somebody that lives from day to day, They've worked the last day, so they've been paid, so they've got enough bread for the day that they're off, but they're not going to get paid today. So what about tomorrow? So tomorrow, 
they have to go back to the marketplace to try and find work in order to get paid at the end of the day on an empty stomach. Or having not quite had enough for the day. And so maybe then they're not able to work as hard as somebody else. Maybe they're fatigued from having not eaten and having worked hard the previous day. And so maybe they're less likely to get picked, a little bit like playground football, <laughs> by the person who's looking for those to work. So when this parable says that the landowner went back at midday and at three and at five and there was still others just hanging around, it wasn't because they'd had a line. Right? These aren't lazy people. They're not just like, ah, well, we'll, just, we'll see what we can pick up at three o'clock in the afternoon. Chances are, these people were at the marketplace at the same time that everybody else was. But for whatever reason, whether that be to with how they looked, whether they had any uh, disabilities, any injuries, anything that would mean that they wouldn't get as much return for their investment on a day labourer, these people have been passed over when the first call went out for work. And so I wonder kind of how that changes how we read this parable. Because the earliest to be employed, those who are employed at the start of the day, I'm willing to put good money on the fact that they would have been the fittest, the strongest, the healthiest, the most able to do a full day's work in the hot sun. They had the most going for them. Because if I'm going to pay you, this, if I'm going to pay you a day's wage, I want a good return for that wage. Right? And so the people that get passed over, we don't know why they got passed over. But I'm fairly certain that there would have been other things going on that would have meant, them, meant that they were less of a safe investment, less likely to give a good return for a day's wage. And so suddenly you've got some different things entering the parable here because the vast majority of the people there on that day I think would have been at the marketplace at the same time that day as those that got picked first. But they weren't all starting from the same place that day. They may have been starting at the same time, but they were starting from a very different place. Whether that's because they were hungry, they were fatigued, they were injured, they were elderly, we don't know. But I'm fairly certain that these day laborers in the story of Jesus, and it is a made-up story, but he includes all of these details on purpose. This is a real situation. People would have gone, oh yeah, I saw people like that down the market this morning. People would have known this kind of scenario. And so I'm fairly convinced that though they started at the same time, they were all there at the marketplace ready to work. They weren't starting from the same place. And Jesus goes on. He says, when the day's work was over, the landowner instructed his operations manager, call the workers in and pay them their wages. Start with the last hired and then go on to the first. Those hired at five o'clock came up and each were given a full day's pay. That's not a bad day, is it? Then uh, when those who were hired first saw this, they assumed they would get far more. Because, hey, we agreed to work for a full day's pay. They didn't start work till five and they'd been paid what we agreed. So surely, surely I'll get more. But they got the same each one of them got precisely one day's pay. Taking it, they became angry at the manager. One of them spoke up saying, these last workers put in only one easy hour and you just made them equal to us who slaved all day under the scorching sun. 
Essentially, that's not fair. It's not fair. He replied to the one speaking for the rest, friend, I haven't been unfair. We agreed on the wages, didn't we? So take it and go. I decided to give to the one who came last the same as you. Can't I do what I want with my money? Are you going to get stingy because I'm generous? In closing, Jesus says again, here it is, the great reversal. Many of the first ending up last, and the last first. It's not quite the ending to the parable that we were expecting, I think. You kind of, you see the setup and you go, okay, we just need more work. Well, fair wouldn't be to agree a day rate, would it? We know that. Fair would be to agree an hourly rate. Right? You're all going to get paid the same rate per hour, so those that work longer get paid more. It's basic maths, right? That's fair. You work one hour, you get one hour's pay. You work eight hours, you get eight hours pay. It's the way that we tend to work. If you're self-employed here, you'll have two, two rates. You'll have a day rate and an hourly rate, right? Because it's fair. And yet, this parable isn't fair. Or is it? You see, I don't think it is. I do think fairness would have been for, them, for the manager to have gone out in the morning and goes, right, you're going to start at the first start of the day. I need more workers, so I'll come back. Right? Full disclosure. I'm going to pay you an hourly rate. And however many hours you work for me today is what you'll get paid at the end of the day. If you've gone out and had the same conversation at 12, 3, and 5, I think that would be fair. But this parable isn't fair. Is it equality? If fairness is like the lowest form of justice, then equality, I think, is maybe the next step on the ladder. Is it equality? Well, they all got paid the same. Is that equal? But they didn't all work the same. So it's not quite equality. Because I think equality would have been people from disadvantaged backgrounds, the elderly, the poor, the, those who hadn't eaten the day before, equality would look like them working together for the same length of time but for the same pay, knowing, with the landowner knowing that he's not going to get the same return off of all of them. There are going to be other things going on, but hey, you're going to work the same time, so we're going to pay you the same, whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, whether you're old, whether you're young. We talk a lot about that sort of equality in the workplace in our society today, don't we? Equal pay. If you've done the same job, you should get the same money. I think that's what equality would look like in this parable. But that's not the parable. So what's above equality? We would tend to use the word equity. It's not a very common word. It's not a word we hear a lot about. We seem to be happy to settle at equality. Well, hey, everyone got paid the same. Everyone did the same day's work. Everybody got paid the same. Equity recognizes that not everybody starts from the same place, but needs to end up at the same place. Equity recognizes where you've started from and gives you exactly what is sufficient to get you to the same place that somebody starting further ahead of you is. So I'll give you for instance, right? So if, um, let's say for a moment that you don't own a house and I do. Okay? I already own a house. I have a mortgage. Great. Now, let's say, for the sake of argument, that a very generous person comes to me and comes to you and says, here's £150,000 cash. Happy days, right? <laughs> That's a few days' work, right? <laughs> £150,000. I want you to buy a house. I would just pay off my mortgage. Right? I like my house. There's nothing wrong with my house. I just clear my mortgage. Now, my mortgage is less than the value of £150,000. But you may be able to buy a house worth £150,000 
cash, no mortgage, great. So both of us end up with a house without a mortgage. That's equal, right? Is it equitable? No. Why? Because we'd have how many tens of thousands of pounds left over after we paid off our mortgage. And so it's the same gift, right? But we've benefited more than you have. Why? Because we already owned a house. That's what equity is. It's not the same as equality. Equity would be somebody coming to me and to you and saying, hey, whatever the value, I will buy you a house mortgage-free. And then somebody coming to me and Elena and saying, hey, I will pay off your mortgage. It's not the same amount, but the outcome is the same. And I think you see a snapshot of equity in this parable. Jesus never uses the word. It's not a word he would have known. But I think the principle plays out for all of us to see. So what does this mean for the world of Jesus? And ultimately, what does it mean for us? The world of Jesus, the economy, if we use that word, that he lived in, was one of scarcity. The fundamental principle of a scarcity economy is a deeply held belief that there's not enough to go around. So I have to keep as much as I can get because there isn't actually enough for everybody to have some. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I think we live in a scarcity economy today where we're so worried about rising cost of livings, and rightly so. We're worried about global events because of the impact that it has on things like fuel and food. We worry about these things. And I think if we were all pressed, we would all hold that kind of idea that, do you know what, I'm just not sure there's enough. I used to be sure when we were growing up, I used to be sure that the world had enough for everybody in it. But as I get older, and as prices rise, and as global conflicts kick off, and you see how delicate our supply chain is, I start to wonder, Jesus, is there enough? Is there actually enough? But here's the thing. The overwhelming language of Jesus is the language of grace. We've all heard that word, right? Grace by definition, is the language of sufficiency, not scarcity. Grace meets the need, no matter how great or how small the need may be. Grace is equity in practice. <laughs> and so I have to wonder, when Jesus talks about the language of grace, and we've taken this to be a really spiritual thing, and it is, right? God's grace is sufficient. But growing up in church, I heard this parable often preached in this way. Essentially, no matter at what point you join Jesus' workforce, right? thinking about the rich man's question to Jesus immediately before this parable, no matter what point you join his workforce, you get the same reward as everybody else. And it's an eternal reward. And that is true. But the more that I've studied over the years, the more that I've read, the more that I've encountered Jesus, the more I'm reminded that the gospel, the good news, isn't just spiritual, but is hugely practical. It impacts not just on our eternal life, but on the life that we have here and now. And I think the message 
the thing that Jesus is revealing to us today through this parable is this. No matter your starting point, no matter your disadvantages, no matter the gap between where you are and where Jesus sees you being, his grace is sufficient. And it's as simple as that. Now I realize in saying that this is as simple as that, it's not. Right? <laughs> it's complex, it's messy. One of the things that I find challenging, and we talked about this in our small group a couple of weeks ago, is the language of disadvantage. Do you want to know why it bothers me? The language of disadvantage. It assumes that everybody has an advantage to begin with. I don't know where that came in. <laughs> I don't know why we assumed that everybody had the same advantage at, at the point in which they started. And so therefore, somebody that doesn't have a naturally occurring advantage in their life must be disadvantaged. And I'm less and less convinced that we start with an advantage. I don't think everybody starts with the same advantage. I think that's why we have such issues with things like workplace pay. <laughs> Is there are some things that some of us have through no merit of our own, through no, nothing that we've done, I am advantaged because I am a white man. Right? I don't feel bad for that. I can't control that. But if I want to work towards justice, how do I help people that have started in a different place have access to the same opportunity as I do? How could you do that? What would it look like for you to live with grace within your world? To provide grace to those around you. To minimize the gap between where somebody starts and where we believe Jesus is calling them to. Because I think that's the parable. I think that's why Jesus in this story, the landowner, pays everybody the same wage regardless of when they worked. Because they recognize that at the point that they start work, whether that be midday, 3 p.m. or 5 p.m., has very little to do with anything that's in their control. And maybe, just maybe, the person who'd missed a day's work yesterday, the person who was missing a limb but needed some form of income today, person who was sick, the person who was ill, maybe, just maybe, by paying them the same day wage as somebody that worked from six, it's an opportunity for all of them to start the next day at the same place. And I think the landowner recognizes this. It's not a simple thing for us to work through as a church. There's no like, this week I want you to go and do this. But it is something I want us to think about as you go back to your workplaces, as you meet people in town, as you bump in and have conversations in this rising economy, in this cost of living crisis, I want you to think hard. What can I do with the advantages that I have, whatever they are, 
to live with grace. Knowing that if grace is the dominant language of Jesus, and if his kingdom is a kingdom of grace, and I believe that it is, then I live in a kingdom of sufficiency, not an economy of scarcity. I'm going to invite the band back up and they're going to lead us in a time of worship again. But I want us to really wrestle with this because I think it's a, I think it's a big issue within the world that we live in. Scarcity, fear, short-temperedness uh, and anger against people because we didn't get what we thought we should have or because they've not done the same as I have and yet they've got more or they deserve to have less than I do because they made different choices I think that's the world that we live in And yet I'm reminded constantly that the kingdom that Jesus brings is a kingdom not of this earth. And ultimately, it runs on a fundamentally different economy. An economy of sufficiency, of enough, of grace. Why don't you stand? I'd love to pray for us. King Jesus, we are reminded again that the kingdom you are bringing is one that we may not recognize (laughs) at first glance. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like it should work. And yet, Jesus, this morning, we choose to recognize that we live in a kingdom of sufficiency, that your grace is enough to meet every need. to level the playing field, to ensure that when you, bring, when you bring your kingdom in its fullness and what has gone wrong is made right, that each of us will start and finish from the same place. In your name we pray. Amen. There's just one final thing before I hand over to the band. For those of you that are looking at yourselves going, no, do you know what, Dan? Yeah, I've got a fair bit of advantage going on. There's no shame in that. I've got a lot going for me. I've made good choices. Some of the things that I have in my life that are advantages now are because of things that I've done. There's no shame in that. But I wonder whether in this world of scarcity that we live in and that the kingdom is breaking into, whether in order for the disadvantaged to become the advantages, the advantaged, whether those of us who have some advantages may have to lose a few or forego some access to some things that we would prefer to have. 
so that somebody else might have access to the same advantages. And to us, that would feel like a disadvantage. It would feel like we've lost some things. But I wonder whether that's part of what God is doing with his kingdom in this time and place. Is he's just leveling things out in his time and by his grace. Thanks for listening to this message from New Life in North Lincolnshire. To find out more, do visit us online at newlifechurch.uk or why not pay us a visit? We'd love to see you.